The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let me just uh, add one um, uh, set of comments here because of the question about the relevance of this for theological questions. Uh, On the one hand, it is not accurate to say that uh, textual variation uh, does not affect doctrinal passages. That's not quite right to say that because the very problem that you're dealing with in Matthew 24, obviously uh, that has some relevance for what you think about the doctrine of, uh, of the natures of Christ and so on. Or the m- more obvious one, 1 John chapter 5, there are three who bear witness in heaven and so on. Obviously that has implications for the doctrine of the Trinity. So you, you want to be careful how you express these things. It's not that there are no textual variants affecting doctrinal passages. The issue is that the variants that there that they are are not of such a character that would lead you to modify uh, your doctrinal uh, conclusions from Scripture. Why? Well, the main reason, you see, is that biblical doctrine is never built on one or two, three passages out here. Biblical doctrine is built on the whole tenor of Scripture. And um, I think I have mentioned this before, but I want to, to stress it as much as I need to. I don't care what text type you choose, whether it's the Byzantine or the Alexandrian or the Texas Receptus, or even any one manuscript, choose any manuscript you want, or even combine all the worst ones together, like Bentley suggested, you see. And now you work with with that text, whichever you have chosen out of all those possibilities, and you go, let's say, to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I choose the Westminster Confession of Faith not simply because it's our uh, standard here, but because it's one of the fullest I mean, it's not a little fundamentalist creed of ten lines. We're talking about a a whole bunch of stuff. And I can tell you that there isn't a chapter or probably even a paragraph in that whole confession which which you would have to change because you're using a different text type from the ones that the uh, Westminster theologians used. They worked on the Texas Receptus. But I don't care what text type or manuscript you use, none of it is going to affect any of those doctrines that have been formulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I think there's an important distinction to keep in mind, but to also appreciate uh, what that tells us with regard to the uh, preservation of Scripture by the Lord. Now, again, the, the other side of it is 
that I don't think it's a very good idea for you to think, oh, well, then, since uh, our doctrine isn't going to be changed as a result of textual criticism, why do textual criticism? Um, well, because I think you want to find out exactly what the Lord is saying in any particular passage. And uh, because there are all these questions that people raise. And, uh, and if you go to a church and you're preaching or teaching or discussing and you're using the NIV and somebody pounces on you because of uh, you're using a wrong text, uh, are you going to um, be able to, you know, say something intelligent <laughs> um, in response to that kind of thing? Uh, or if somebody, you're ministering in a place where there are university students and the students hear in one of their classes that the uh, um, text of the New Testament is corrupt, uh, are you going to be able to um, respond to that sort of thing? And um, hope you will be able to. Well, any other questions about this thing before we move on? Yeah. Usually the first person that is said to have uh, uh, appreciated this was Bengal. Bengal. Uh, he detected at least two main strands of textual families. And then Griesbach uh, was the one who came up with the threefold uh, system. Okay, the New Testament canon, and the first thing that I want to do is um, to give you a little bit of an introduction to the subject. <coughs> you want to, um, when dealing with the matters of, matters of canon, uh, you want to distinguish between, some people have put it, between the word and the thing the word and the thing that, that the word is referring to. And uh, I want to, uh, in fact, say just a little bit about the meaning of the word canon um, so that we're clear on what that is, and then we can start talking about the concept or the, or the thing that the word is referring to. Uh, I'm sure you're dying to know this. The word probably goes back to Sumerian. <laughs> And uh, the Semites borrowed it from the Sumerians. So you have this Semitic uh, root, Kof Nun He, in Akkadian Kanu, and in Hebrew Kane. Aren't you happy to know that? The Greeks borrowed this word, probably from the Phoenicians. And you have the word Kane, uh, meaning, again, like a rod or some kind of measuring instrument. And uh, it developed into two formations, two formations, kana and kanon. Uh, the word kana, let me see how I can do this, was borrowed by Latin into kana, and uh, then to French, can, and then to English, cane. Are you glad to know that? Whereas the other one, canon, was borrowed by Latin as canon, by Italian, canone, and then English borrowed one as canon with two ends, and then uh, the other one that we're interested in, uh, canon with one N. Everything is related in this world. <clears throat> That's the word. 
Now let's talk about the real stuff. Um, the, the Greek word kanon uh, was most frequently used of a, for example, of a carpenter's rule, so that it had a very concrete meaning in, in, uh, in daily life. But then it could be used metaphorically of any kind of standard, because our, even in English, talk about a rule, well, a ruler, you know, uh, and, and the, uh, from the physical to the metaphorical meaning, it's, it's very obvious. So canon could be used of any kind of norm or standard. And that is the way in which it is used in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. Uh, as many as walk by this canoni or canon. Uh, as many as walk by this rule. Namely, the principle of, of the new creation. Now, the point that I'm trying to make right now is that at this stage in the New Testament uh, period, the word canon or canon has not yet acquired the more technical sense with which we use the term nowadays. It's just kind of a general term that could be used figuratively of a principle or a rule or a standard, something like that. Then later in the history of the church, the word was used more specifically of, of the religious standard with such phrases as o canon teis that is the rule of truth or the rule of faith or even the canon of the church, the rule of the church. And, and all of these expressions were simply a way of indicating the basic doctrinal standard or identity of the Christian church. Now, because the Christian faith is so intimately related to Scripture, I mean, that's where we get our message, that's where we get our doctrine, then, not surprisingly, the word, especially in Latin, the word canon, came to be used more specifically of the Scriptures. So what is in the canon, what is in the canon, you see, was a way of saying what belongs in our foundational standard, if you will. And uh, that's what we're interested in here, of course, this sense of the term canon as referring, it's really a, a technical term that we borrowed directly from Latin and refers to uh, the and now this is the thing, this is not just the word now, but the thing that we're talking about, namely, the authoritative collection of books. The authoritative collection of books, uh, which forms the standard of the Christian church. Now, keep in mind that the word collection here is a very important one. Uh, remember at, at the beginning of the semester I talked about what is general introduction to the New Testament? Well, it, it is a discipline that, is, that focuses on the New Testament as a whole, not on the individual books primarily, but, uh, but the collection as a whole. And the, the collective concern of general introduction 
is especially evident when you're dealing with the canon. Um, we may and will discuss specific books. That's an important element. But even then, um, we're really thinking about what is the place of this book within a larger collection. And uh, I hope you also realize that to speak in these terms is to also be thinking of a unity. Uh, we're assuming that there's a certain unity uh, involved in this collection of books. Uh, in addition to the word collection, there's another important word there, authoritative, the authoritative collection. And uh, authority is, is, is a concept so closely linked to that of canon that in certain contexts they're almost interchangeable. It is your standard, it's your authority, you see. Now, uh, this is a very important topic for a variety of reasons. You realize that in the development of modern thought, like in the 18th century and um, beyond that, you have a gradual abandonment of the very notion of authority. And uh, when that way of thinking comes, uh, confronts the Christian faith, it often leads to a disintegration of the canon. Because if you, if you have a weak notion of authority, then you start raising all kinds of questions about the canon, whether it's open or closed, and maybe, you know, we should... So those two things seem to go together, a notion of authority and a conception of what is the canon. Modern critical concerns over the canon, in other words, when a, when a scholar today raises a question about whether a book should or shouldn't be in the canon, or even about the very, whether it's meaningful to speak in those terms. Critical concerns of that sort are inseparable from what I think is a defective notion of authority. Now, that's one reason why this topic is important, because it, it affects in such a fundamental way um, the, the authority of, of the Christian message. But our topic is important for another reason. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum here. Christians tend to look at the Bible, you know, as an ahistorical uh, thing. We, I think our, our instinct is to, um, even if we're not thinking about it too much, we, we, we tend to view the Bible as something that just kind of dropped down from heaven directly and that's going to address my personal concerns here, my individual hands, you see. And I have my own problems, and the Bible is going to address my problems. And, uh, of course, I don't want to minimize for a minute the individual element um, and the fact that all of us as believers, you know, there is an element of truth in, in approaching the Bible in that way. But if, if that's all that's going on, then there's the danger for distorting what, uh, what God has given to us. Because, you see, it doesn't really honor Scripture to treat it in a way which does not respect its character as a historical uh, document. 
set of documents, we have to acknowledge and take into account the fact that these were books written by human beings over a long period of time, each of them within a particular historical setting, and that uh, they were brought together as part of a historical process, both in the Jewish community and then later in the Christian church. And uh, it is therefore incumbent upon all of us to reflect on canon, to reflect on what this means. And I, I think that, that reflection on the historical processes by which uh, the, the church recognized the canon and so on can be a real help also in helping us look at the Bible in a way that does more honor to its character and doesn't treat it in a way which it was not intended to be treated. Now, I'm still dealing with, this, with these introductory comments. Let me just say uh, something else which has to do with some general presuppositions that I am bringing here. In other words, we're going to start dealing with some number of issues that are difficult and controversial and what have you, and you cannot deal with every element you know, from scratch. You've got to assume certain things. I'm assuming that you can understand English spoken with a Spanish accent, um, that uh, you, know, you believe that there's such a thing as a Bible and a Christian message and so on. Among other things that I'm assuming is the authority of Scripture, particularly its unity. The, um, I, I'm working here with the assumption that God has given his people all that they need, all that, they, all that he requires of them. And so this sense of completion or, or, or unity is something that I'm assuming. I'm also assuming certain things about the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, we, we simply have to acknowledge the fact that not everyone receives the scriptures. Now, how do you explain that? Well, you can either explain that by saying that there's something ambiguous about the evidence, or by saying that there's some, something ambiguous in human beings. Their sin and their ignorance uh, doesn't allow them to see that evidence. And here's where the Holy Spirit comes from. Uh, I mean, here's where the issue, uh, if you will, really... Uh, hits home, that it is only by the work of the Spirit that people are enlightened to understand and um, accept the evidence. So that you have you know, the, the twin truths of the divine evidence on the one hand and human blindness on the other, and, and that can only be bridged by what we call the in internal witness of the Holy Spirit, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. I don't know whether you're fully aware of that, of the fact that that concept of the individual witness of the Spirit is a distinctively reformed uh, way of putting things. It's not that only reformed theologians are the ones who, who understand something of the work of the Spirit. I'm just saying that there's a particular perspective or concern that has characterized uh, reformed theology <clears throat> already in Calvin's Institutes 
book 1, chapter 7. Uh, there's considerable reflection on that. And what is the Reformed view of the internal witness of the Spirit? Well, I can best describe it by telling you what it is not. It is neither, on the one hand, the communication of new divine information. It is not communication of data, if you will. Nor, on the other hand, does it deal with some kind of irrational feeling. By irrational, I mean non-rational, that, that has no uh, contact with our <coughs> mental processes. Neither of those two extreme, and, and you know, you, you find both widely in the Christian thought that what, you know, the Spirit is leading me, you know, I'm trying to make a decision, so, aha, this, I, I, you know, the Lord spoke to me sometimes, we might say, and people mean different things by that, but if it means that I have somehow gotten the information that this is the way that I ought to go, and, and God has communicated something to me beyond what Scripture tells me. That's not what the internal witness of the Spirit means in Reformed theology. But neither is it some kind of, you know, there's this self-contained feeling that is totally unrelated to information that we may have from Scripture, for example. Rather, uh, according to this Reformed understanding, you're dealing... You, you appreciate that the Spirit, the Spirit's activity always takes place, to use the Latin expression, cum verbo, with the Word. Uh, it is not that the Spirit is communicating something that is not in Scripture, but that the Spirit is bringing home the truth of Scripture to us, by clearing our heads and our hearts, by giving us understanding, and, uh, and that willing uh, disposition to accept what God uh, is uh, revealing to us. That is the concept that I'm working with, and that will have some relevance to some things we'll be saying. Yeah. Well, first of all, do you appreciate that's a different question from what I'm talking about? In other words, in other words, I think that's a legitimate question to ask, uh, and we can spend a lot of time on that because it is a complicated issue. At this point, I'm I'm just trying to deal with um, a step uh, earlier, an earlier element, an earlier question that um, when um, when. Reformed theology has spoken about the internal witness of the Spirit. Those kinds of issues have not been the focus of, of the concern, but rather the question, why is it that some people respond in faith to Scripture and others don't? And um, the Spirit is the one who bridges that the, the reality of the evidence with the, the blindness. And uh, as I said, I'm just reminded this is kind of what I'm working with here, and then but there are these other problems that, uh, that I think very legitimate can be debated beyond that. Let's move on then in the outline to, um, because I want, 
what I want to do is to uh, go through the whole history of the canon in relatively brief terms, trying to do this today and tomorrow. And then um, we'll go back to the second century and look at the evidence in the second century in more detail because that's the real you know, bugaboo, if you will. Uh, this is where a lot of the controversy comes in. How do you interpret what went on in the second century? And um, I think, I think you'll, you'll, you'll understand why I'm do, doing this in this strange order, first starting from the beginning and going through the whole history quickly, and then going back to the second century. Um, in the ancient medieval church, the second century is indeed the beginning, if you will. I mean, beyond the actual writing of the New Testament books, uh, what do you have? Well, you have a certain amount of evidence, and I'll give you that evidence very, very briefly right now, and we'll come back to look at it in more detail later. Uh, the evidence is as follows, in very general terms now. You look at the first half of that century, and uh, you come across what we refer to as the apostolic fathers. Apostolic fathers. <laughs> This phrase, the Apostolic Fathers, is kind of the standard way of referring not to the Apostles, and, and that's, maybe it's a little ambiguous because it sounds like they're the Apostles, uh, and that's why some people prefer to use terms like the post-Apostolic Fathers or the sub-Apostolic Fathers. But Apostolic is the standard term. And what it refers to is to the, you know, a certain, this, the generation uh, immediately following the generation of the apostles, uh, leaders in, in the church had left writings, and um, it's a, it's a well-defined, discrete number of, of uh, people, including uh, Ignatius, and Polycarp, and Clement of Rome, and so on. Uh, we'll go back to some of these later. And in these writings, all you have, with regard to the New Testament canon, are scattered references. You know, a quotation here, an allusion there, uh, nothing very systematic. And that's the big problem, uh, by the way. How do you interpret those kinds of uh, allusions? In the second half of the century, in the second half of the second century, uh, we have the uh, so-called apologists, the apologists. People like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen, Clement of Alexandria and so on. These individuals seem to be more self-conscious in dealing with the authoritative character of the New Testament. And and part of the reason that they're self-conscious about it and they talk more directly about this issue is the presence of heresy, particularly the heresy of Marcion that we'll, again, have something to say about. But Marcion and other groups were, in effect, raising questions uh, that had to do with the authority of Scripture. And therefore, naturally, 
uh, Christian leaders at, at this time now, in the, second, in the latter part of the second century, are addressing directly questions that we would say these are questions about canon or about the authority of the New Testament. <clears throat> That's all I want to say about the second century right now, and we'll come back to it. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. To the New Testament. Yeah. But you do not have extended discussions about the authority of those of the New Testament writings or you know that kind of systematic uh, reflection. Yes. Origin, also Clement of uh, Alexandria. We'll talk about them later. <clears throat> then we skip a uh, period of time, basically the third century. There isn't a whole lot. That, well, see, Origen himself, uh, a lot of his work was done in the early part of the third century. But I want to skip now to the, fourth, the, the early part of the fourth century and deal with Eusebius, the testimony of Eusebius. As you probably know, Eusebius is a very, very important um, writer, um, particularly because of his ecclesiastical history. Uh, he did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people, looked at uh, libraries and so on, and uh, wrote uh, a history of the church, going as far back as he could find evidence for it. And in the course of his narrative, he talks about discussions. He talks about discussions regarding the canon of the New Testament and uh, what uh, the different churches accept and they do not accept. And we have this very important statement in Book 3, uh, Chapter 24. Book 3, Chapter 24, and you probably cannot see this again, but nevertheless, um, actually 25. This is Chapter 25. At this point, it seems reasonable to summarize the writings of the New Testament which have been quoted. <clears throat> In the first place, should be put the holy tetrad of the Gospels, that is, the fourfold Gospel <coughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To them follows the writing of the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, so far, so good. After this, should be reckoned the Epistles of Paul. Good. Following then the epistle of John, called the first, mm -hmm. and in the same way should be recognized the epistle of Peter, apparently the first epistle of Peter. In addition to these should be put, if it seem desirable, whatever that means, the revelation of John, the arguments concerning which we will expound at the proper time. These belong to the recognized books, homolegumena. Homolegumena, this, this means to speak alike or to be agreed on, that sort of thing. So the homolegumena are the books acknowledged or recognized, uh, homologumena, sorry. of the disputed books. Now he has 
anti-legomena, anti-legomena. This does have the epsilon here. Anti-legomena, to speak against. Uh, Doesn't mean, please understand, these are not books that are rejected, but rather books that some people have something against, that is, there may be some arguments uh, in favor of not accepting them as part of the canon. So, of the disputed books, which are nevertheless known to most, so people apparently read them throughout the churches in the empire, are the epistle called of James, that of Jude, the second epistle of Peter, and the so-called second and third epistles of John, which may be the work of the evangelist or of some other with the same name. Then, among the books which are not genuine, and he uses here the term notha, these are now the you know, spurious books or spurious or uh, not to be accepted. Um, must be reckoned the Acts of Paul, the work entitled The Shepherd as the Shepherd of Hermas, which now we put in, in the group of apostolic writings or sub-apostolic writings. The Apocalypse of Peter, and in addition to them, the letter called the Barnabas, also in the post-apostolic fathers, and the so-called teachings of the apostles, or the Didache. <coughs> and in addition, as I said, the revelation of John, if this view prevail. Now, um, for as I said, some rejected, but others counted among the recognized books. And then he talks about a couple of other things. Now, this is a very, very important piece of uh, information. And uh, you need to, incidentally, make a distinction in your own mind between Eusebius as a historian and Eusebius as a theologian. There's a difference between keeping in mind what Eusebius records <coughs> that people have said or that people are saying, and his own views about what should be in the New Testament. Uh, question? Yes. Well, he had his doubts, but, but when he speaks about the epistles of Paul, he knows that the uh, Hebrews is generally regarded as one of them. Although he was perfectly aware of the fact that not, that uh, um, in the second century, particularly in the Western Church, some people didn't believe it was from Paul, and therefore it was not uh, recognized in some quarters. Yeah. Uh, distinguish between you see, as a historian and as a theologian uh, that you want in, in your own evaluation of what he says to uh, take into account when he's recording as a historian, he's recording what people have said or what the evidence of the early church is, is one thing. The other thing is when he gives you his own opinion, you see, as to some of these things, uh, keep that separate. It may be good opinion or not, but uh, that's a separate question. And, and I, I, the reason I'm emphasizing that is has to do particularly with the book of Revelation. See, it's a very strange thing that uh, 
Why doesn't he put the revelation among the antilegomena? That's what you would expect. There are some people who don't like the book of Revelation. Okay, so this is a book that is spoken against, so it's antilegomena. Why say, on the one hand, that it may be homologumina, but on the other hand, it may be totally non-genuine? And some scholars believe that uh, this strange way of, of dealing with it may reflect Eusebius' own misgivings about the book of Revelation. He did not like the book of Revelation. As elsewhere, he, has, uh, he says things uh, that uh, suggest um, that he had problems with this book. <clears throat> and um, I, I think we need to be aware of that because at best, the revelation of John should be viewed as antilegomena. You know, people know it, it is accepted widely, but there are some circles in which the book is not uh, viewed as canonical. <clears throat> I hope that, uh, and incidentally, I, I should say that um, Eusebius is depending heavily on Origen's own uh, statements, which are almost a century earlier, not quite, but almost a century earlier. And um, again, Eusebius is trying to give you an idea that if you go pretty far back in the church, probably as back as the second century, this is the kind of picture you have. And what picture is it? Well, please don't lose sight of the fact that the bulk of the New Testament I mean, if you take the four Gospels and add Acts and the Epistles of Paul, including Hebrews, and um, a couple of the other books, you've got, in terms of pages, that's you know, probably about, I don't know, 85% or something of the New Testament. There's no dispute about that. And there is, but there is still a certain amount of fluidity. That is, uh, the, the boundaries are not totally clear or... You know, they're not black and white yet, as they would be later. When? Well, by the year 367, <clears throat> which is the date of, a, um, of one of Athanasius' Easter letters. Athanasius, as most of you probably know, was the, um, when he was in an exile, which was a good deal of the time, he was in exile. But uh, when he wasn't, he was the um, head of the church in Alexandria. And uh, one of the most uh, significant and influential fathers uh, of the 4th century. And every Easter, uh, you know, he would proclaim a uh, feastal letter. Uh, dealing with various things, and the one in the year 367 addressed specifically the contents of the uh, biblical canon. And this is the first time when we have an official ecclesiastical document where the list of books of the New Testament agrees exactly with the list that we are familiar with, the 27 books that we consider part of the New Testament. So, from that point of view, um, the year 367 is very important. Uh, it 
it is the time when we have uh, a, the first ecclesiastical formal description of the limits of the canon in a way that corresponds to uh, ours. <clears throat> we move on, yeah. Is there any evidence that there is comment that... If you're asking whether we have any documents that interact directly with Eusebius, not to my knowledge. Oh, with Athanasius, oh well. We know perfectly well that there were some, some areas in the church, particularly the Syrian church, that did not uh, buy that uh, statement. But uh, I think it is fair to say that when Athanasius makes that proclamation, what he really is doing is giving expression to what now the church as a whole has come to in terms of its understanding. In other words, this is not some kind of decision from, from above, but, but rather over the centuries there was this growing consensus and, and the, that letter gives expression to it. Yeah. Pardon? I mean, Eusebius is from? No, he's from the East. Uh, well, um, Eusebius um, had various kinds of contact. Uh, wh why is this important to you now? Okay, Eusebius is, Eusebius is uh, reporting on what the churches as a whole are saying, yeah. And uh, it is, uh, Athanasius is acting as the presbyter of the Alexandrian church. And uh, proclaiming the official position of his church, not of the whole uh, church, but in, in, the, uh, in the presence of maybe some disputes or questions that are being raised. Now, moving to the Middle Ages, <clears throat> simply to keep in mind that, that this position that uh, is reflected uh, explicitly in, the, uh, in Athanasius' letter, um, as I said, this is not what every area of the church officially is proclaiming, but within the next century or so, there were a number of official gatherings which uh, affirmed the same thing. And uh, th these went on for probably into the 6th century, actually. Uh, and again, you have a lot of information about this in the book by uh, Detroit, Robert Detroit, and uh, some of the other material that um, you're being asked to read. Um, <coughs> So you can get all the facts there. I think it is reasonable to say, as, as a generalization, that in the West, the question was basically closed by about the year 400. In the Western, Latin-speaking church, there seems to be virtually no significant debate on this matter after the year 400. Um, whereas, in Syria, uh, there continue to be some disputes, uh, pr primarily over um, uh, the the minor Catholic letters, you know, things like Second, Third John, and also the Book of Revelation. But even in the East, I think you could say that by the year 550, uh, the matter had been resolved. As you move into the heart of the Middle Ages, there. The, the, because the matter had, in effect, been you know, brought to a closure, 
there isn't much discussion of this matter about the only thing of significance is some debate about a document called the Epistle to the Laodiceans, but uh, that really didn't amount to very much, and I don't think we need to, um, to worry about it. But then we move on to the Reformation, and uh, at this time, there are renewed debates and discussions about it. Why? Well, with the rise of humanism, people began to ask questions <clears throat> having to do with authorship of documents. You know, I, I said something about the uh, donation of Constantine and the authenticity of that document. Um, and even with regard to the New Testament, Erasmus, for example, when he deals with the books of the New Testament, talks about the authorship of certain books, particularly the Epistle to the Hebrews. And uh, he, be, he is very skeptical about uh, the Pauline authorship and so on. So that people are beginning to debate things at a different level and, and other kinds of questions. Although within the church itself, including Erasmus, it was not an issue of authority as such. In other words, people were not questioning the authority of the New Testament books. But the very fact that they start asking questions about the authorship of some of them uh, makes people aware of things in a way that they were not before. With the coming of the Reformation, you really have a thorough recon reconsideration of the place of Scripture. The Reformers were, you know, some people argue that the Reformation was primarily a hermeneutical uh, event, asking, you know, how, what is the function of the Scripture vis-a-vis -vis tradition, so on. And so it was inevitable that uh, the question of authority might be raised, and it was raised specifically with respect to the Old Testament apocryphal books. Old Testament apocryphal books, which the reformers uh, rejected, and the Roman Catholic Church reaffirmed. I'll say a little bit more about that. Luther is rather a significant figure here, um, because partly in response to, to you know, much of the conflict that he was involved in with the Roman Catholic Church, he decided unwisely, I think, but he decided to classify the books of the New Testament on the basis of their respective importance. And so he said, look, there are some books in the New Testament that uh, are the heart and marrow of the gospel message. And these were the Gospel of John, the Epistles of Paul, and the first epistle of Peter. So John, Paul, and first Peter, he considered to be the heart and marrow of the New Testament message. That's the, that's the real good stuff. At the other end, you have a number of books that were not so useful. Now you have to interpret so useful in, the, in terms of refuting the Roman Catholic Church. Hebrews, Jude, Revelation, and especially, of course, James. Okay. So Jude, 
Hebrews, Revelation, and especially the Epistle of James, which he actually described as a letter of straw. Now, let me uh, simply say parenthetically, a lot of people assume that what uh, Luther meant was that James was not canonical or should not be in the canon at all. And that is not that clear. Uh, he didn't like James because it caused him a lot of trouble with the Roman Catholic uh, dispute, you see. But uh, whether he really would have argued for excluding it from the canon, that is another question, and, and uh, there are differences of opinion about that. <coughs> so you have the heart and marrow here, then these are not so useful there, and then the rest of the books, you know, it's not the Gospel, Acts, and so on, they're okay. There are a number of problems with the way in which Luther addressed these questions. Actually, he never really wrote a book on, on the canon or even a, a, an extensive discussion about uh, canonical reflections as such, but uh, he did say enough to raise some problems. Uh, one of them is that he seems to be speaking in terms of a canon within the canon. In other words, uh, within the New Testament canon, he wants to identify a something a little bit narrower or smaller that is particularly important or canonical. And uh, he would, uh, particularly he would speak about, uh, you look for uh, was Christum treibet, that which presses Christ home, or that which preaches Christ. And that meant for him, of course, justification uh, by grace uh, and not uh, by works. <coughs> Let me just uh, add a couple of things about Luther very briefly. Uh, there is a, the problem with this notion is that private feeling or, or private consideration begins to affect how you understand canon, and that is problematic. Uh, the positive side of what Luther was doing was that he was now breaking with purely formal criteria. Dutoit makes that point in his discussion. Uh, that now uh, Luther is moving discussion to other areas that uh, it, it was important that people should reflect along these lines. It is also important for you to appreciate that later uh, in his ministry, Luther modified a few things. For example, he, in, in uh, subsequent editions of his German New Testament, he omitted this reference to James as a letter of straw. Uh, so there were some alterations about the way in which he was uh, phrasing these things. Okay, tomorrow we'll continue with the Reformation and probably get started with, um, with, with the assessment of the second century evidence. Remember